Amen. Yes, we're uh, in our series called Rebuilding, looking at the book of Nehemiah. And uh, for those of you that weren't here two weeks ago, here's a little map. It shows where Susa is. That is the epicenter of the story or where it begins. Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire, which is modern Iran. And uh, that's where Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Uh, by the way, for the children, there is a program, so uh, you're welcome to leave for the junior school children. There, there is something on for you. So just a little bit of a refresher. In chapter 1, we, we're introduced to Nehemiah, and we discover that he was the kind of person who was concerned about other people. He wasn't just wrapped up in his own life and in his own happiness, but he was interested to know, how are things going with the Jews in Jerusalem? How is that community doing? And more importantly, how is the plan of God prospering? And he, he asks the right questions, and he finds out things are going really badly, and he's actually quite moved by what he hears, and, and that takes him into a period of fasting, of seeking God, and the, and the upshot of that is that he waits on God to give him an opportunity uh, to do something about the problem. And it's all initiated in chapter 2 where he's with the, the king and the door is opened by the Lord. The king asks him, why are you looking so sad today? And the answer is given, well, I'm sad because I've got this burden on my heart. My people, Israel, are in a bad way. The city's broken down. The walls are destroyed. The gates don't exist and they're in disgrace. And... Uh, there's his answer, and then he, the king says, well, is there anything you want to do about that problem? And Nehemiah says, send me, send me. I want to do something for, for you, Lord. And the king incredibly gives him a letter of permission, gives him leave from his job, gives him safe conduct, and gives him timber so that the work can begin. There's one verse that Tom would have covered in his section, which ended at verse 8 of chapter 2, and it's a beautiful verse. You know you get verses in the Bible that are just, mwah, you know, like all verses in the Bible are inspired, but some are really, oh, that's a good verse. Uh, and this is one of those verses. Nehemiah says, and, and it's in light of everything that's happened, the whole thing of the, the dinner opportunity, God saying, I'm not God, Artaxerxes saying, well, here's resources, go and sort out Jerusalem. He says, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Don't you love that, that saying? The gracious hand of God was on me. It's the picture of a parent kind of just behind the kid, kind of moving. That's what you put your hand on a kid so that you can direct them where they need to go. And then they think they're going there themselves. You know how it is, but you've shoved them in that direction. So it's a beautiful picture. It's a loving picture of God graciously just maneuvering Nehemiah 
where he wants them to be. This, this reference to God's gracious hand is, is seen often in the Old Testament. It's one of those classic Old Testament sayings. We read in Ezekiel that before he sees the valley of dead people, the hand of the Lord was upon me. We, we read in the book of Ezra, this all happened because the hand of the Lord was upon him. Ezra 7.9 talks about the good hand of his God was on him. Ezra 8.18, according to the good hand of God. So this is a great phrase, the hand of God was upon me. And my question for you today is, do you sense the gracious hand of God is upon you? Because as a child of God, that's your birthright. doesn't matter what's happening in your life, it can be good or bad, but do you sense that the gracious hand of God is upon you? Another thing, I really like the adjective that is used here. He doesn't say God's hand was on me. He says, the gracious hand of my God was on me. And this is why stuff happened. And Nehemiah is telling us here that what he set out to do, it wasn't his idea. It wasn't Nehemiah was going to go and do something great for God. And sometimes we can be like that when we invent plans or we have a vision of what we want. That's often not God. But here he's stressing for us, no, the gracious hand was upon me and this burden I felt and how things worked out and the circumstances I found myself in. This was because of the gracious hand of God being upon me. God was leading him. And thus far, he has received three things. Nehemiah has received the go-ahead, go to Jerusalem, and, and do what is in your heart to do there. He's given safe passage. Hard to believe, but a military escort is sent with Nehemiah. I mean, this is crazy stuff. You know, one, there's one king of Babylon. He's trying to destroy Jerusalem completely. And then the next king's using his army to protect Nehemiah and, and to give resources. And he's given letters accessing timber and all this kind of thing. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, why would King Artaxerxes have this willingness to send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city? Well, there, there are two lines of reasoning here. The first is that the Persians had a different foreign policy. Um, the Babylonians liked to destroy everybody else's culture, exile the people, let them integrate, let them mingle, and we're just one mass of people, and we'll rule everything. That was the Babylonians' approach, divide and conquer. The Persians had a more civilized approach, and I think there's even been a, a movie made about Cyrus and whatever. The Persians actually recognized other cultures and peoples and didn't mind that they had their own cities and whatever as long as they cooperated and paid their taxes. So the Persians have got a slightly different approach, and that's one of the reasons why Artaxerxes is open to Nehemiah going back and building Jerusalem. It could have been a new source of income for him. But there's another stranger reason, and it's the Esther connection. 
Esther was a young Jewish girl who happened to be really beautiful. And sometimes being beautiful is not a good thing, as many beautiful women have discovered. Esther's very beautiful, and there's um, the king at the time, Xerxes, had a wife, Vashti, who was a feminist. And uh, Xerxes was throwing a party for his mates, and he thought just to end off the party, how cool it would be if his hot wife, Vashti, would come in and do a bit of the equivalent of pole dancing. Maybe they had pillar dancing back in the day. So, so Vashti is, is commanded, come and entertain my guests. Um, and her, she sent word back to the king, uh, not on your life. Uh, so the king simply fired her, divorced her, whatever it was he did to her, but she was out, and now the king was looking for a new wife. And the way he decided to find a wife uh, was to have a beauty competition. That, that every, if, if you were spotted, okay, you, you look good, you must be in the beauty competition. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at the story, Esther wins this competition, or she's a finalist, okay? So she has to go off now for beauty treatments for a year or two. This is hectic stuff. Uh, bathing in milk and who knows what else they did. But Esther through this thing of uh, King Xerxes getting rid of his wife because she didn't want to dance, Esther somehow finds herself as the new queen of Persia. And the connection between this next king, Artaxerxes, and Esther is that Esther was older, but they would have grown up together in Susa. And Esther would have most likely told Artaxerxes about the Jewish people and all. And so when Nehemiah comes years later and says, I have it on my heart to go and build Jerusalem, he's like, oh, that's my old friend Esther. She's a Jew. She comes from Jerusalem. That sounds like a good idea. So that's just speculation, but not the part about the dancing and all that. That's not speculation. Um, but but it, this relationship and this being the motive. But whatever it is, God is at work in this situation. And we need to understand... I, what I love about theology is that God doesn't just work in the good things. Sure, God worked. Nehemiah had a cushy job. He's with the king. That was an opportunity God gave him. God was working there. But God was also working when this 12-year-old girl who is Jewish, she's an orphan. She's been raised by her uncle Mordecai. God is also working here where she, to her horror, becomes a finalist in a beauty competition and is shunted to the king's harem. That is an evil thing, but actually God is also at work here. And God uses these human events that are wrong to further his purposes. And maybe that was part of the, the catalyst for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I like to think that it was. Right, we're not going to read Nehemiah. I want to just dive straight into a more text-by-verse approach as we go through this book. 
So here we are. This is the section we're doing today. Verse 9. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had sent army officers and cavalry with me. You can see how important this mission is to God. I mean, he does not want Nehemiah to fail with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I mean, there are few missionaries that I know that get given a police escort and a bit of the army sent with you um, to help you succeed in, in your mission. But God was so keen that the temple be rebuilt, he just opened up everything for Nehemiah. I've already told you a little about Esther and Mordecai. Here's another verse about how God works in the bad times, in the bad times. The story of Joseph. Here's this young guy. He's got a dream in his heart. God's going to use him. His life's going to be great. It's going to be significant. And he, he shoots his mouth off and he starts telling everybody about the great things that he's going to do for God. That doesn't go down so well with his brothers and sisters. In fact, they hate his guts. And it gets to the point they fake his death, sell him into slavery, and he becomes a slave in Egypt. Gee, how would you like that to happen to you if you're so-called seeking God's will? And you've got this dream in your heart of what you're going to do for God. Not so cool, is it, to now be a slave? But he works hard as a slave, and he accepts, okay, God, I'm a slave, well, I'll do my best at it. And then a woman just accuses him of rape, just like that. A woman he had faithfully served. So he's accused of rape. Okay, so now he's chucked in jail. Well, that's a bit tough. What about this dream I have of serving God? Um, this is a bit depressing. Oh, gee. And then he's used of God to interpret a dream. Oh, promising. Oh, these guys are going to remember me because I've really helped them out. Oh, will you tell the king that I'm here? It's unfair and hopefully he can get me out. Oh, dear, that guy forgot to tell the king. Oh, okay, I'll spend another few years in jail. Friends, this is how God unfolds his will for our lives, unfortunately. Eventually, at the end of the story, after God has worked, and you see, God needed a way to get Joseph from the promised land into Egypt, and he probably wouldn't have just gone. So sometimes God makes a plan for us. And at the end of Joseph's life, well, not quite the end, but when he's reconciled to his brothers after decades, he says this, and it's another powerful verse, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Sometimes it looks as though the wheels are falling off our lives. But actually, it can be God positioning us for what He wants us to do next. This is a great verse. If you're discouraged about what's going on in your life right now, take note that even what others intend to harm you, God can be in that thing working it for your good. So as we study the story of Nehemiah, we need to ask ourselves, what's happening in terms of the providence of God? How has God positioned us in terms of our relationships, our resources, our connections, the opportunities that God has set before us? So off he goes. 
verse 10, he runs into opposition. Sunballot and Tobiah, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And you will find out too that if you ever try to do something to promote the welfare of Israel, you're going to disturb a whole lot of people. Watch this morning. They're not at all happy that these, that Nehemiah has come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And we're going to hear more about these guys later. Later in the series, we're going to learn about the, the, the opposition that Nehemiah faces to, to fulfilling God's calling. But the goal is here is to seek the welfare of the Israelites. There's the verse right there. One body that's very much against Israel is the United Nations. Between 2012 and 2015, 97 resolutions were adopted critical of other countries. 85% of those resolutions that the UN passed in those years were all about Israel. There, there is an unfair bias Forget the human rights abuses in China and Iran and in Saudi Arabia and everywhere else. No, the one country that 85% of the time comes up for a whipping is Israel. Even though it's a tiny little country with a couple of million people living there on a small little piece of land that pales into insignificance with the size of most other countries. No, this is the country that 85% of all UN resolutions in that period we're about. No wonder Ban Ki-moon, the former United Nations General Secretary, admitted that, is, that there is a disproportionate focus on Israel. And it is a spiritual thing. And it starts right here when, where Sunballot and others are against the Jews and anybody seeking their welfare. From verse 11, we see Nehemiah going on a field trip. I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I'd not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Friends, are you familiar with this term, what God had put in my heart to do? I wonder what dreams and passions God has put in your heart to do for God's kingdom, for God's people, about injustice in society. Can you, can you relate to this, that God has put stuff in your heart to do? We're told in Philippians 2 that we're to work out our salvation because it is God who works in us to will stuff, to desire stuff, to want to do things. For his good pleasure. I hope you sense there is a, a call in your life, a passion in your heart. <laughs> What's the phrase? God has put something in your heart to do for him. I hope it's there. And the temptation is often to tell everybody about that thing. It's stressed in this passage here in Nehemiah that he doesn't tell anybody. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding with. And it tells us, lady, he didn't tell anybody about the vision that God had given him. 
Because then our egos get in the way. Pride grows and people can begin to oppose us. Talking about what we're going to do for God is way less important than doing stuff for God. And sometimes there needs to be less Facebooking and Instagramming and a little bit more action. We're told how he goes through at night, through, through the ruins which had been broken down, which had been destroyed. He goes to the king's pool. There's not even enough room for his mount to get through. Goes up the valley examining the wall. And we're told in verse 16, But as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests, the people who would be doing the work. But there does come a time when he says, let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. For years, people had been living in Jerusalem. Nobody, but no leader had stepped up and said, let's rebuild the walls. And that's what leaders do. They galvanize people. They get people to do things, to work together. People had lived there for years in the ruins. But Nehemiah has a burden from God to come and sort this mess out. And he acts very strategically. He first understands the nature of the problem. That's what he's doing on his horse as as he examines the ruins. He gets to grips with the problem, which is what we need to do as well. Get to grips with what is the cause of injustice in our society? Why is there poverty? Why is the kingdom of God not advancing, if that's the case, in a place? Do we really understand the nature of the problem? Then there's the call to action. Come, let's rebuild the wall. And there's encouragement. He stresses, hey guys, the grace of God is upon us for this. The gracious hand of my God is upon me. Let's start rebuilding. And then the opposition starts up again in this chapter. What is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? These are guys that like the status quo. There's always people that like the status quo. Sun Ballad and this other bloke and Gershom, they've kind of gone into this little power vacuum there and they don't want some outsider, Nehemiah, coming in here and stirring things up. They just probably got their little schemes going there. They're opposed to anything Nehemiah wants to do. What is this you're doing? They mocked and ridiculed them. Let me also say today that if you ever set out to do something great for God, there are going to be people lining up to mock and ridicule you. And we have to learn to be able to stand alone and to have our confidence in God. There are going to be people that throw the Lord at us. What's this? you're doing this is not right you're rebelling people are going to oppose us when we set out to do what what God's laid on our hearts to do but he's full of confidence he says in verse 20 the God of heaven will give us success 
And that's what happens when you've spent months in prayer before God and you really know this is what God wants me to do. This is the burden on my heart. And it doesn't matter who stands against me. I know it's going to be successful. The God of heaven will give us success. As I begin to wrap this up, there's also this very relevant statement written in the 5th century BC where Nehemiah can say to those who are opposing his desire to rebuild Jerusalem, he says, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. There's been a huge outcry when the Americans announced they're going to move their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It's the polite thing to do, that if a country tells you, this is my capital, all the other nations that are responding say, okay, we acknowledge it and we'll put our embassy in your capital, because that's obviously where your government sits and where you do business. And there's a huge hoo-ha and outcry. But Israel's link to Jerusalem as its capital is indisputable. David founded Jerusalem as the capital of Israel in 1000 BC. That's 3,000 years ago. He established it there as the capital of the Jewish Nathan. Nation. It was where Solomon commissioned the building of the first temple. The very temple mount that today is regarded as sacred to the Muslims and that the Jews don't even control. That temple mount, it is indisputable that it was built by King Solomon. A body of the United Nations... UNESCO adopted a resolution in 2016. I think they were forced to rescind it. But it illustrates the anti-Israel bias at the UN. It denied any religious connection of the Jews to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It referred to the holy site by its Islamic name alone and only acknowledged the historic value of the Temple Mount to Muslims. I mean, it's unbelievable stuff. But after the Babylonian captivity, which we're reading about now, the Jews returned in about 537 BC. The first group of exiles came. At the time of Jesus, the Romans were occupying Israel. But it was clearly Jewish territory in the homeland of the Jews. The modern state of Israel was, was established in 1948 by the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations. The Palestinians were offered to have a state as well. It was going to be a two-state solution. The Jews were going to have a state and the Palestinians were going to have a state. The Jews said, thank you very much, we'll take that. The Palestinians held out and said, we won't have half a state, we want it all. Seventy years later, they're still stateless. These are significant words when Nehemiah says, you have no share in Jerusalem 
or any claim to its historic right to it. And this was said nearly two and a half thousand years ago. To end my sermon, are you living with a sense of the gracious hand of God upon you? I hope you are, because this is how we should be living. We should be aware of God's providential activity in our lives, His gracious hand upon us. Do you see the significance of where God has placed you? This is key in the story of Nehemiah. He's cupbearer to the king. He's a, he, Esther has been there years earlier preparing the way. Don't say, well, God can't use me where I am. <laughs> no, 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 no. He certainly can. And what are you going to do about what God's putting in your heart to do? Will you be wise in how you share or don't share that vision initially? And will you brace yourself for opposition and criticism and conflict in the course of pursuing what God has called you to do? And will you commit to believing that God is going to give you success following your pursuit of what God's prompted you to do? Let's pray together. Lord, this is a very inspirational and relevant passage of Scripture. Thank you for this phrase, the gracious hand of God was upon me. Lord, we pray that every one of us in this church could be able to say that too. Lord, Nehemiah speaks a lot about God putting something in his heart to do. just want to pause right here and ask you to think about what is God putting in your heart to do? Maybe you need to spend more time as Nehemiah did praying about that maybe you need to go on a field trip to learn more about what that could look like what's God put in your heart to do will you do that thing even if there's opposition even if you feel alone and will you have confidence in God that He will give you success in what it is that He's leading you to do? Lord, we pray for all the dreams that are in the hearts of these, your people. Lord, don't let these dreams die. Don't let them expire, Lord. May we be a people who live like the hand of God is on us, who live following the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Speak to us, Lord, and show us your ways, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. We're going to share